0: chapter and we have quite a bit of ground to cover. We might take a little break uh, before chapter 13 because Jesus gets into what we call eschatology, the study of the end times and things and and we really want to build up for that right? I once read Martin Lloyd-Jones said if you really want to build a crowd, if you want to draw a crowd, preach on the end times because everybody really wants to hear that. So we're going to save that for those Summer months, when everybody wants to take a break, no, come and hear about the end time. So we're going we're gonna to dig into that right as summer's getting really hot, and we're looking forward to that. Um, I didn't mention this earlier, but on Pentecost Sunday, uh, the last Sunday of the month of May, we are having, I, I did announce this last week, we are having one of my favorite preachers in the entire world. I mean, I'm talking top three will be preaching here at Faith Assembly of God. For those of you who don't know, he's my former youth pastor, Steve Schmidt, and he is one of the reasons why you get what you get every Sunday, for better or worse. I'm one of the monsters he created, so uh, <laughs> whatever you want to take that. Ron got it. He's laughing, um, but I'm really appreciative of him. He's kind of coming up during his vacation. He was just coming up to visit, and I said, no, if you're coming, you got to preach, And we're also going to have in attendance my my best friend, Pastor Jason Fisher from Algona, Iowa. So uh, we talked about the idea of having one three-part sermon with all three of us preaching together, which would have been awesome, but um, also about five hours long. So we didn't want to put you poor people through that. So we decided we'll just let Steve preach and and go from there. Uh, But I am very excited for this. I would challenge you to come out that Sunday and, and hear Honestly, he's he's a great preacher. The title of the message today is Murder in the Vineyard. We're looking at the parable of the tenants. And if you would stand with me, we're going to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants. "...to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son." Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they were, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Maybe seated this morning, the one thing I hope you take away from this: this is a beautiful story, a beautiful parable. And it's a a great truth that is revealed not just to the religious elite who were meant to hear it originally, but to us as well, to followers of Christ, to his disciples. And the point that I hope you take home this week, and and as you look back at your notes and study and things, the one thing I hope you take away from this message is simply this. The position of our heart in God's vineyard reveals our place in his triumph. I'll say that again. The position of our heart in God's vineyard reveals our place in His triumph. And what's that mean? Well, we'll unpack that as we go this morning. One of the things we notice when we look at parables, one of the things you hear people say so often is, you should tell stories when you preach, when you you watch lectures or you hear Bible college professors talking about Uh, teaching how to preach, they often say, well, Jesus told stories, so you should tell stories. Now, there's a difference between using illustrations, which Jesus did, and telling parables. We can't confuse the two. A parable was actually something that a prophet would speak in judgment of his audience. When Jesus is speaking parables, he's not doing that to make the whole thing very clear to everybody who's hearing it. When Jesus speaks in parables, it's clear to his followers because he'll explain it to them. We saw that back in the parable of the sower in in Mark chapter 4. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, what did that mean? And Jesus says, well, okay, I'll explain it to you, but I'm not going to explain it to them. For them, for the unbeliever, for those who have a heart hardened against God, it's not for them to understand. And so Matthew 13.13 says the same thing. Jesus speaks in parables so that, the whole purpose is so that the Pharisees, the religious elite, the elders, the scribes, the chief priests, that's who's in attendance there, if you remember last week, they're not going to understand this. Now, it's not really about tenants. It's not really about a vineyard. There's a deeper meaning that's meant to be revealed to us. And when we study this and we look at this, And we we begin to break it down. What we're truly seeing is an example here that Jesus is, is giving his followers of God's hope, God's love, his patience, his kindness, his mercy, and eventually his wrath. And ultimately what we're going to notice is that where our hearts are in the vineyard reveals our place in his ultimate victory. We go back to chapter 12, verse 1. It says, and he began to speak to them in parables. Well, he is obviously Jesus. And this is continuing the theme of last week, what we saw when when they came to Jesus with the question about authority. And and who were the people who came? The chief priests, the scribes, the elders. Likely, mostly, I said mostly Pharisees, because the Sadducees will get their shot. But there's still probably some Sadducees mixed in with these People, it's the religious elite who come to him in this moment, and they question his authority, and and they don't answer his question, so he doesn't have to answer their, their question. And we explained all of that as we went uh, went through that as well. But he says he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. Now when we read that, verse 1, we could unpack that for for quite some time. I'll try not to spend too much time on it this morning, but but there's a lot of depth there for us to, to see. You know, vineyards were actually a very common thing through first century Palestine. Most of the people in Israel would be familiar with the concept of a vineyard. Wine was a pretty common drink kind of like Coca-Cola is today, or Pepsi. It was just something that was part of the culture. It was something they saw. This is common imagery that Jesus is using to make his point. But when we really see what he's saying, we should go back, because he's he's alluding to a passage in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5. And if you have your Bible and you want to turn there with me real quick, This is what Isaiah has to say. He says, "Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out, hewed out—I never know how to say that word—hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes." And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So what he's saying here is there was supposed to be one type of fruit, and there was something else, not the fruit that he wanted. Now the disciples, knowing Isaiah, because they were Jewish men, they would have at least been familiar, probably had memorized or at least were familiar with the first few chapters of Isaiah and would have known this story or known these passages. When Jesus begins to talk the language so similar to Isaiah, they could easily sit there and connect the dots here and their mind would likely go back to that cursed fig tree. When Jesus went to get something to eat, when he went to look for fruit, and it wasn't there. Much like the vine dresser looks at his vines and sees wild grapes. That's not the fruit that he wanted. So there's this idea here that, that it's the wrong fruit or bad fruit. it might as well be no fruit at all. Now when the landlord plants this vineyard, he does this not all for his own profit, but he spares no expense. We must understand that. The first thing it says he does is he builds a fence. Why would he build a fence? To keep out wild animals. Maybe protect his vineyard. But it's not going to be some huge wall. I know some translations say wall. If it was a wall, it would be about waist high. It's meant to keep out the foxes. It's meant to keep out the rabbits and all. Any animal that's going to damage the vines. At the very most, it's going to be a stone wall about waist high. At the least, it's going to be a, a, a jumble of briars and, and a bar, brush that's weaved together and be a, a hedge around that vineyard. And then he digs this pit, and that's going to sit under the wine press. That's where he's going to collect the wine in bottles and, and wine skins and so forth. We're familiar with all of those terms. But notice what else he does. In both Isaiah and here in our text today, he builds a tower. He didn't need to build a tower. With the vines already out there, protected by the fence, and you already got the pit, you've already got the wine press, you've got everything you really need to be effective, yet he builds a tower. The tower is going to serve three... Purposes for one, it's going to be a lookout for protection. If people want to come and raid, or or, or a messenger is coming, they can be in the top of the tower and say, "Hey, I see a, a horse or a camel coming this way," and they can announce it and they can prepare to welcome the person, or as we're going to see, prepare an ambush. So this tower is a lookout point, but it's also a shelter for the workers. It's a place for the workers to find rest. A place for the workers to eat and and feed themselves and dress themselves and have some protection from the elements themselves. It's also going to be storage for seed and for tools. That's, That's the purpose of the tower. Now, he didn't have to do that. They could have left their tools out in the weather. They could have slept under the stars. Many people did. Shepherds did that sort of thing often. But yet, the landowner in our parable spares no expense. He builds a tower for them. Why does does Jesus include that? Why did Isaiah include that? Because it is showing us God's total provision for the nation of Israel. He set them up for perfect success. They were without excuse. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had the land. They had everything. And yet, Time and time and time again, they would fall away. They would produce rotten fruit, wild fruit, strange fruit, no fruit at all. And the truth is, God doesn't do this. God doesn't plant this vineyard because he wants profit. He owns everything already. But he does this because he wants glory. He does this because he wants their worship. He doesn't want the wine. He wants obedience. He doesn't want the land. He wants their heart. And what this really is showing us, if if we take a step back and just think about this for just a moment, this is showing us the bigness of God, the greatness, the vastness of God. I'm not talking about the the beauty or, or even the glory here. I'm talking about just how big and magnificent, and wonderful He is, in who He is. I, I Back in January, I preached a message on, on tithing, on giving, and it's the whole message was, it's God's stuff anyway. We only give because we want to be obedient, because we want to worship. God, God does not need my money. God doesn't need your money. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything on planet earth is His. We may be a ball of dirt floating around a star in space, but it's His ball of dirt. It's His star. It's His space. It all is His. And so what we see here is His, his vastness as the, the one who planted the vineyard, who establishes the vineyard. We see His sovereignty and His, his bigness shown to us. And where our heart is, as we step into his vineyard, his vineyard being his kingdom, his vineyard being his land, his establishment, his church, where our heart is determines our place in his triumph. We go on to verse two and it says, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, when we read this thing about the season, we think it's just the following fall, right? Because that's the time for harvest. We all have farmers. We know farmers here, right? Raise your hand. If you know, fall is harvest time. Yeah, okay. So you know that. Not so in this scenario. Because the law had established in Leviticus 19, specifically verses 23 and 25, that if you were to plant a vineyard, you didn't get to eat of the vineyard or drink from the vineyard for three years. Nothing uh, from that vineyard was any good. It was evil. It was wicked. It was, it, it was just compost, kind of to work as a natural fertilizer, I guess. I, I'm not a big farm guy myself, so I don't know how that works. But they couldn't harvest any of that stuff and make a profit. And in the fourth year, everything was an offering to the Lord. So five years into it, then they can make a profit. Then they can pluck the grapes and make the wine and sell it and make money. Five years have passed since the vineyard was built and the master went off to another country. It's kind of like that gap in our Bibles between Malachi and Matthew. There's about 400 years where the prophets are silent. And then along comes John the Baptist. There's this idea that there was just working of the land, tilling of the land. And then all of a sudden, the master sends along a servant. Now, the idea of servant here, by the way, a servant, and and you guys have heard me say this before, the, the Greek word here means slave. That's important. Because if I'm a servant and I'm told to go collect money or I'm told to go collect fruit or I'm told to go collect something from, from some people by my master and I show up, or by my employer, sorry, not master because I'm just a servant, and I show up, let's say Randy over here Randy's the guy I got to collect some money from and I come over and Randy says you take one more step I'm going to club you. You know what, it's not worth it man. I don't like getting punched in the face. This is, how I, this is how I look good for my wife, right? Well, I could do a better job maybe. But you don't like to get, who wants to get punched in the face? Nobody? Did you raise your hand? In, no, okay, never mind. No, she's, she's just like, don't, okay. Nobody wants that. So he doesn't send servants that are employed. He sends slaves who have no choice but to do the master's will. And notice they're not collecting money. They're there to collect fruit. They're there to inspect the fruit of the vineyard and to take some back to the master. This is, allegorically, this is the prophets. These are the prophets God sent to Israel. In fact, in Exodus 14, 1, the the word used is my slave or my servant, Moses. Moses was a prophet. Amos talks about the fact that God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, and the, and the word is also slaves there, the prophets. So Jesus is very clear. Israel, the kingdom of God, is this vineyard. And the servants, or the slaves, these are the prophets who go to inspect the fruit, who go to bring God's message, who go to challenge the workers and speak to them and understand what's what's the master's will. But these tenants, these tenants are just stewards of the land. They don't own it. I don't know about you, but I've, up up until we moved to Lisbon, we never lived in a house. We always were tenants. We lived in rented apartments, Jennifer and I, ever since we were first married. We had a nice little townhouse in Indianapolis, but it was still rented property. We had to take care of that. If I decided one day that I wanted to punch a hole in the wall, I had to fill that hole up. By the way, never did that. But if I damaged it or our dog, we had a a wonderful boxer, big, cuddly, lovable thing, loved to mess on the carpet when we lived in Indianapolis. I was always afraid we were going to have to pay to replace that carpet because that's what a tenant does. He's just there taking care of the property. He's just living on the property and in this case he's working the land he's tilling the soil for 5 years before a profit can be made and these tenants begin begin to resent the master and they begin to become brutal and so we read in verses 3 through 5 and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed again he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully And he sent another, and him they killed. So, with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. I want you to think about this for a second. Look at the progression of violence here, the progression of wickedness in these men. First, they take him, they they take the first guy, they beat him, and then they send him away. Now, if they were going to beat him, that means they're going to strike his back, they're going to hit him with rods or maybe a whip. And then they're going to send him on his way. The second man, they hit his head. Which, if you've been hit in the head before, if you've ever gotten a concussion, you know that's not fun. That's why I said I don't like to get punched in the face. But yet they strike him and they shame him. They treat him shamefully. And third, that's not enough. So they kill him. And many more. They beat them or they kill them. Their wickedness and their violence escalates. Of course, this is referencing the prophets. We understand that. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7.25, he says, From the day your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, or slaves, the prophets to them day after day. But the truth is they wouldn't listen to them. Now, they would listen to the prophets who would say, peace, peace. Peace when there was no peace. They love the the room full of prophets, prophets that would say, Oh Ahab, if you wanna if you want to conquer, you go out and conquer. With these horns, you'll take over the, the battlefield. And then don't listen to Micaiah. He's the one guy who always tells you what you don't want to hear. Don't listen to that guy, but he's the only one who speaks, empowered by the Spirit of God. They don't want to listen to the prophets unless they came with good news and true. Prophets of God rarely came with good news. It was almost always condemning, always challenging, always meant to edify and build them up and make them different. And we see their reaction to this even with Moses. They wanted to stone Moses, right? Have you ever wondered why why'd they want to stone Moses? Well, it's because they couldn't stone God Himself. Israel would stone Moses and then by proxy they'd be stoning their God who saved them. That's how they treat the prophets. Isaiah. Isaiah's a pretty popular prophet. You know how he died? Church tradition tells us. He was sewn into a sack, stuffed in the hollow of a tree, and sawn in half. Tertullian and Justin Martyr both testify to this. Zechariah. We mentioned Zechariah a couple weeks ago. He was stoned to death in the temple. 2 Chronicles twenty four twenty one tells us this. Hebrews 11 refers to all this. Hebrews eleven thirty seven. 37, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. And then along comes this other prophet. After a, a 400 year or so lull of quietness named John. The older cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist. And what's, what's one of the leaders of Israel do? Do you hear that? Cut his head off. They killed him. All of this was done by the leaders of Israel so they could preserve their station as the leaders of Israel. They could keep their vineyard to themselves. It was theirs at that point. It was their land, their temple. The truth is, it was never theirs to begin with. God had given it to them. They were to be stewards. And any true prophet who comes along, they treat him They, they, they treat him violently, they, they treat him as a threat because he is a threat to their titles. He's a threat to their ministries. He's a threat to their power and therefore must be put down Now Israel, in Jesus' time, was probably profitable. That's why Rome left them alone, for the most part. They probably did crank out some money. They probably did have good wine, good vineyards. But the leadership of Israel, those religious elite in the temple, they took the credit for themselves. They didn't go to Yahweh God. And when Yahweh God shows up, what do they do? What authority do you have? Who do you think you are? They want to stone him. They want to ultimately crucify him. Can't stone Moses by proxy this time. Let's hang him on a cross. You see, their hearts were only on making the vineyard their own, not pleasing the one who owned the land. Instead, they hoped to replace him. And church, honestly, do we not do this ourselves? So many times we forget to pray, Lord, I just want to please you. I just want to do your will, not mine. No, no. In our arrogance, we pray, my will, God. Back in my pocket where you belong. Back in the box where I've put you. Verse 6 comes along and says, He had still one other. A beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, They will respect my son. The way this reads, really, in the Greek, it's almost as if it's saying, And there was only one thing left to do. There was only one option available at this point. They stopped listening to the prophets, but they'll have to listen to my son. Now, clearly, as a reader of Mark, we would understand. This is Jesus in this parable, right? Because God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Many times in Mark, well, at least two times, specifically in Mark, He has made it very clear that God the Father Himself has called Jesus His Son. At His baptism in Mark one eleven. He said, This is my Son, On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, John, they see Jesus as he truly is. And this voice comes out and says, this is my son, listen to him. So the reader of Mark, Mark knows and he wants the reader to know Jesus is in this parable and he's the son. The son outranks the slaves. The son outranks the servants. Paul makes that very clear in Galatians 4. So Jesus is parallel to the Son. Who's the parallel to the tenants? The leaders of Israel. Those elders, those scribes, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the chief priests, the religious elite. The Son is second only to the Master. He's second only to the landowner, the one who started this whole thing. And through that, we understand the land is as good as the sun's. When he shows up, that's his dirt they're tilling. That's his seed they're sowing. That's his wine they're drinking or, or selling. And it's his profit. He has every right to that. But all this time, all he's done is charge them rent. And he's not even done that. He just wants to see the fruit that the vineyard's producing, And they get violent. And so he sends the son. Now listen to their reaction. But these tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. There's only one reason. Hear me on this. There's only one reason the tenants would dare do this to the son. And it's because they believe the master, the landowner, is either dead or he is completely irrelevant. So that tells us the attitude of the chief priests, the scribes, the the elders, those Pharisees and Sadducees. They believed God the Father to truly be irrelevant at this point. Why? Why? Because they have replaced him. You read John chapter 10. Jesus scolds the Pharisees because he calls himself the son of God and they get very upset. And he says basically to them, if you, if you read it, and you study it, he quotes Psalm 82 and he says, I'm just saying out loud what you guys say about yourselves privately and it makes you mad. He's quoting Psalm 82. He says, Uh, You call yourselves little gods, but you will die like men, is what Psalm 82 says. Jesus constantly reminds these men of their station, of their true purpose, of their actual place in the vineyard, and they don't like it, so what do they do in John 10? Well, they want to stone him. They want to kill him. Because they believe the master is irrelevant. They've replaced him. And if there's no error, then there's no competition for the land. There's no competition to be the ultimate authority in Israel. It's them. The tenants would have every right to the largest portion of the prophets. They were the ones who worked the land in their own minds, even though it belonged to God, even though it belonged to the Master. In the same way, the scribes, the elders, and the priests, they had become rich. They developed their own systems, their own traditions around the law, their own routines, much like those who worked that vineyard probably had. And then along comes the son, and he just wrecks their plans. He just ruins all that they had seen for themselves. And truthfully, they miss out on the true fruit of their labor. And it wasn't theirs anyway. But they miss out on a good relationship with the master. They could have been taken well care of. This is a man who built the tower. This is the man who gave them land to work. He would have taken further care of them. But they want to be the ones in charge. In the Gospel of John, he pulls the curtain back even further. John eleven forty eight. 48, he says, these are the words of the Pharisees, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And what will happen? The Romans will come, and they'll take away both our place and our nation. It's not their nation. It's not their place. If we let the Son live... We lose our place of control. We lose our property. We lose everything we've worked for, everything we want to rule, and everything we want to run. We'll lose that. But the law makes it very clear they were only ever to be stewards of what they were given. It was not theirs, it's not their possession. God gave it to them. Leviticus 25, 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. And it's God speaking. You are strangers and sojourners with me, he says. You can work it. You can live there. It's your home, but only because I decree it. Only because God gives it to them. Now, this part of the parable, if you're a Pharisee, if you're a religious leader, if you're a chief priest, and you hear this part, this is like a thumb in the eye. This is this is really disrespectful. This is really irritating to hear Jesus say this because, again, he is reminding them of their station. You're not the leader of Israel. God is. You're not the king of Israel. You have no right to the throne. You're supposed to be the religious leaders and you're doing a poor job of it. This is all that Jesus has said to them over and over. And they hate that. And in doing this, he exposes that he knows their real intentions. He knows the position of their hearts in the vineyard. He knows the position of their hearts in the nation of Israel. So what consequences would they have to look forward to? What's the master going to do? Well, verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others isaiah tells us to us like this if we go back to isaiah verse 5 and now i will tell you what i will do to my vineyard i will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured and i'll break down its wall and it shall be trampled down i'll make it a waste it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up i will also command the clouds that they will rain no rain upon it for the vineyard of the lord of hosts is the house of israel And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness. And behold, an outcry. The wall is broken, and the vineyard itself is in ruin. And what Jesus is doing here, very subtly, is he is prophesying to them about the fall of Jerusalem, their poor leadership, their poor stewardship, is going to be the downfall of everything they loved, everything they cherished. God's going to destroy the temple. In fact, later in chapter 13, He makes that very clear the temple will be destroyed. This happened in 70 A.D., about 40 years later. Matthew's account says it a little less gently. He says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. In other words... Those leaders, those religious elite, they're about to lose their spot. We know, because of our position in history, that that's going to be given to the apostles. They're going to be the ones leading the church and the mission to the Gentiles. Paul, quoting Hosea, he says this in Romans 9.25, that this is what's happening. He says, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not... Called beloved, I will call beloved. The tenants are going to lose their spot in the vineyard. And the vineyard's going to grow beyond Israel. The vineyard's going to be more than the Jewish people, it's going to be open to the whole world. Now, I want to make a point here this morning, and I know this might be a little controversial with some, but hopefully it's not. Um, we do not replace Israel. Okay, there's this whole thing of replacement theology is what it's called where the church replaces Israel. That is not what Jesus is saying. In fact, when we read Paul, Paul says we are grafted in as children of Abraham. We are now included in Israel. They lose their position and they lose their temple and they lose all this, but the church rises up to be what God intended for it to be all along. And this ties back into Last week's message, when the hardness of our heart keeps us from hearing the truth, they wouldn't hear the truth. They wouldn't see the truth. They wouldn't examine the law to see what Jesus was saying, whether or not that was true. Though we may understand it, if our knowledge of it doesn't change us and grow us in our faith, just like the elders, just like the leaders, we lose our right, our place in the vineyard. And we lose our place in his triumph as well. We read on in verses 10 and 11. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I thought it was interesting in our worship this morning. We sang about God's marvelousness several different ways. I oh, thought it was beautiful. Now, they knew this scripture. Those who heard this obviously were familiar with this scripture. They knew where to find it. It's Psalm 118. And even in Jesus' day, this was considered a messianic text. They understood this was pointing them towards the coming of the Lord. And it reads, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Peter also quotes this in Acts 4.11. This Jesus is... The stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, I want to be very clear about something. I, I mentioned I'm not much of a farm guy. I'm not much of a construction or carpentry guy either. I took a year in high school building trades, and I think they were glad that I never took another year of it. Our final project, we had, you could pick anything you wanted in the woodworking and you could make it. As long as you bought the supplies, they would, he would teach you and, and coach you along how to, how to make this, whatever it was. We had one guy, Ben Oppenheimer, he made an urn. He's kind of a weird guy. But he took four big blocks of wood, glued them together, and then just took the lathe and went and made a cool-looking urn. I remember he was trying the first time, and he didn't have a very firm grip on that, that chisel, and it went flying across the room. We are all <laughs> Some of you guys are carpentry guys. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You know what I chose? A box. Because I knew my limits. And it was going to be a perfect square. In fact, the way I wanted to make it would be it just would look like a, a black cube. I thought that would just be so cool. Sitting in my room, nobody would know what that cube was. and I could just go open it up and have, you know, whatever in there because teenage guys they have pictures of their friends and souvenirs from missions trips that's what it was going that was what ended up going in it and that black cube became a very brown oblong box in fact i had to put wood filler on the bottom so thick to make it sit flat on a flat surface without just kind of rocking back and forth it was a rectangle By the time I was done, it had sections inside that was not part of the original plan because why not? Now it's a rectangle. And uh, somehow my teacher, I don't know what his mental state was, but he gave me an A. (laughs) I think he looked at me and said, if you just leave this class and never come back, Jeff, I'll give you a good grade. Deal? Okay, Mr. A, I will leave. I say all of that because I'm not a building guy, but I did learn what a cornerstone was. Now, in some buildings in this era, it was the main stone over a door frame. The word cornerstone here actually literally means the head of the corner. Some people believed it was the, the keystone in an archway. That's not what it was. In fact, Paul makes it very clear to us, what it was in Galatians 2.20. It's the anchor for the walls and the foundation. Paul talks about the, the foundation being built by the prophets and the apostles and the cornerstone is Christ. The foundation is the scripture that the prophets and the apostles laid down for us. The word of God being that foundation for the church. And it all points towards Christ. All of scripture testifies of him. Christ is this rejected stone well that was prophesied in Zechariah 10 4 from him shall come the corner stone from him the tent peg and the battle bow and so on first peter he actually quotes this if you want to turn real quick to first peter chapter 2 peter's also quoting isaiah 28 he says for it stands in scripture behold i'm laying in zion a stone a cornerstone "...chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame." In other words, all Scripture is pointing us to Jesus, who is this stone. The builders would have been the leaders of Israel. Those stewards, the religious elite I keep talking about, the priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. But they rejected the stone, just like they'd rejected all the prophets. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 lays this all out right to their face. There wasn't a prophet you didn't want to kill. But then we come to that cornerstone who is the Messiah. And Peter says, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And this is God's doing. This is God's sovereignty on display. Christ is the most important stone in this building. And I do not mean the building, brick and mortar, wooden plaster. I mean the building that is the church. He is what holds us together. He is who we come to worship. He is the center of all we do. The church is not made with human hands. We are the church. We are the building with our, found, with our foundation in the Word resting on Christ and in Christ. First Timothy 1:15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's one of the most important verses in the Bible. I think it, it explains much of the Bible. And yet he died, He rose, he ascended. If the world wanted to kill Christianity ever, all they had to do was produce the body, but they never did because they never could. And they still won't because they still can't. Because He is risen. And when we look at that and we understand that, this cornerstone, this, this stone who's become the cornerstone, who He is and what He is and, and who He truthfully should be to us, how can we not say that's Marvelous that is marvelous how does that happen only through the sovereignty of a very big god a very loving god and that's his triumph i've completely lost my place in my notes Where am I at? Wow, I've lost entirely something here. Anyway, well, I can preach without notes. The last verse, verse 12, they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. Understand in this moment, Jesus' popularity has hindered them from doing anything about it. They do understand enough to know he's talking about them. They do understand enough to know he is pointing the finger at them. He is reminding them of their station. They're angry about this. When Jesus exposes their heart, what do they do? They get mad. Church, what do we do when Christ exposes our heart? When it's all laid out, whenever we're convicted, whenever Jesus says, hey, you know what, your station in the church, it's mine anyway. I gave you that talent, I could take that talent away. All those things, if if Christ is truly the cornerstone, if he's truly the apex of all that we come together for, and we begin to get a little arrogant, a little prideful in our station, and he reminds us of that, what's our reaction? heard a pastor this past week, he said um, the greatest compliment he ever got in preaching was never, pastor that was such a good sermon, and you guys have heard me talk about this before, but it wasn't, pastor that was such a beautiful, so eloquent word you exegeted the scripture so great, it wasn't anything like that he said, I went to the back of the church thinking I'd messed up, thinking I'd said wrong things I didn't say things as good as I could have And a young lady came up and said, Pastor, thank you because God is so much bigger now than when I came. Church, how much bigger is God to you today? When we look at the vineyard, when we look at all this and we see all that He he has set up and put in order and, and set out, how much bigger is He? And how much of our heart truly belongs to him how many times do we say lord i trust you because you are so vast so deep so great otherwise we should ask ourselves what are we even doing in the vineyard why am i here what am i what's my purpose how do we steward the gospel that's a question We have to ask ourselves often. In fact, a while back, I told the other pastors in town, I said, you know, every morning I wake up, and this is my prayer. Lord, show me something else I can do in the town of Lisbon to build your church. I had a pastor tell me, I can't think like that. You should. That's our place. We should should constantly be saying, we are stewards of this. We were given this. What are we doing with it? Your salvation. The gospel that you know. Are you sharing your testimony? Are we sowing seeds in order to reap a harvest? Or are we hoarding the grapes so we can get drunk on our own wine of our own making? That's the challenge. Because the position of our heart in His vineyard reveals our place in His triumph, in His marvelousness, in His goodness, and His greatness. And someday... He's coming for His vineyard. What fruit will He find? What have we been doing? I'm going to move to close this morning, but as I said in the beginning, parables were given for the followers to understand and usually for judgment on others. And yet in this parable it says, they, they rightly perceived He was talking about them. They picked up on that. They weren't happy. But what do they do? Do they fall on their knees and repent, and they say, Lord, you're right, we've messed up? No. They leave. And They huddle together. And they begin to plot. They begin to plan. And they begin to retool and refuel for another fight on another day with Jesus. If we get the message today and it hits our heart, Should we not repent and run to Jesus? Are our hearts broken upon the cornerstone? Are we trusting Him? Are we growing in Him? Because the position of our hearts in the vineyard reveals our place in His triumph. He has the victory. We know that, right? We sing that. He has the victory. It's already His But we have to ask ourselves now, what's my part in that? Where's my place in that? Have we given him our hearts? Do we say, Lord, take it all, but not this thing over here that's mine. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back as we're going to close in worship. He is marvelous. He is good. He is wonderful. And church, if we miss the fact of who he is, And how big God truly is. And how sovereign and how wonderful. We make it all about ourselves. We make it all about our position. Our place. We've missed it. Will you stand as we close the scene?